I'm from Chicago. I know politics. Politics ain't beanbag. That's what they say in Chicago. If you meet any Chicago politician, they're fiercely proud of the city's reputation for rough and tumble politics. They say, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And on the campaign trail, Obama regularly touted his Chicago roots, citing it as evidence that he was tough. We know how to mix it up. We know how to throw some elbows. I'm skinny, but I'm tough. To survive politics here, you have to be a fighter. And it's from this world that Barack Obama, the politician, emerged. This was from Harold's um, campaign in 1987. And, uh, you know, in a sense, you can see the foundation of the Obama future right here. David Axelrod is credited as one of the masterminds behind both of Barack Obama's presidential campaign victories. But back in 1987, he developed the media strategy for the second successful campaign of Harold Washington, the first African-American mayor of Chicago. Here's Harold singing from the podium the night of that victory. I saw him man, he danced with his wife in Chicago, Chicago, my hometown. How would you describe Chicago politically and socially when Barack Obama arrived here? Well, Barack Obama came to Chicago at a time of real turmoil. Harold Washington had been elected mayor of Chicago the year before he came. In the last episode of Making Obama, we talked about Barack Obama's arrival in the city and his work as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. And mine was the first offer that he got. They will chew him up and spit him out in on Gale. I think he was influenced by his studies of the civil rights movement. Such images became a form of prayer for me. That was my idea of organizing. It was a promise of redemption. And so he came here to pursue what he concluded was his identity. You know, I think I have learned how much change you can Every issue we had led us to the door of a politician. Obama came to the conclusion that if you can't beat Harold, you got to be Harold. When Obama arrived in Chicago, there was a wave of change sweeping over the city. And it shaped the political world that he would eventually step into. Hell, watching this blood out blood. So in this episode, the story of that change. Harold obviously had broken down a barrier that many thought wouldn't fall here in the city. Why does 95% of the blacks vote for Washington? And so that's the environment in which Barack Obama arrived in Chicago. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White. And this is Making Obama. Part two, Chicago politics ain't beanbag. We've spoken to a lot of people who knew and worked with both you and Mayor Harold Washington. Talk about what he meant to you. Well, when Harold got elected in 1983, I had just gotten out of college. I was in New York. I was... uh, trying to figure out how I could make a difference in the world. Uh, Full of idealism, had been inspired by the civil rights movement, but uh, there was no movement around at the time. So Harold's uh, election was big news. Uh, There was a sense not just that one of America's largest cities had elected an African-American mayor, but 
to me, more importantly and more interestingly, that it had been a grassroots movement that uh, had swept him into office. It's really important to understand what that grassroots movement that swept Harold Washington into office actually did. Because if you're going to understand Obama's meteoric rise to power, we've got to explain some things about the place where he made his political bones. It was against the backdrop of Harold's election uh, and uh, the struggles uh, that were going on in the city uh, that I uh, was working at the periphery. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to our mayor. We shall see in 83. This is a tape, a handheld cassette tape recording. I stood near a speaker as close as I could get. It was a packed room at the Hyde Park Hilton. Almost three years before Obama arrived in the city, African-American Congressman Harold Washington announced that he was running for mayor of Chicago on November 10th, 1982. City Hall reporter Ray Hanania was there. And it was all pandemonium. There was kind of like this gospel reinforcement. Every time he'd say something, they'd kind of repeat what he said. But I cannot watch the city of Chicago destroyed by petty politics and bad government. I have been urged by the earnest pleas of thousands of people to enter this race. Therefore, I hereby declare my candidacy for mayor. When you really took a moment to step back and listen to it now, it was a real... I don't think I've ever seen an excitement for any candidate running for mayor. I am the guy that if you want it done, that you turn to. I trained myself to become uh, an assassin, I guess you what you would call it. An assassin? Yes, an assassin. Al Kendall carries himself like he knows a thing or two. For decades, Al has been a political operator on the south side of Chicago. He's what the industry calls a fixer. Why am I called the assassin? Why am I called that? Because I grew up on the Herald. Kendall is one of a handful of people in Chicago who worked for both Harold Washington and Barack Obama. Some of the elements is the same elements that became the basis of Barack Obama's campaign. Barack Obama's campaign for president would not be so without the Harold Washington movement in Chicago. Here's Harold Washington campaigning in 1983. We've come into the 1980s with an understanding that we have not just a right but a responsibility to give the best that we have to a society. We want to give it, and we're going to give it if we have to beat them across the head and knock them down and make them take it. We're going to give it to them. I mean, one of the reasons why the African-Americans in Chicago are perhaps the best organizers in the country is because we became the machine and we learned the machine better than the machine. When you get through, you know, fighting the devil, you understand how to win. You can't send an angel to go win in Chicago politics. Al Kendall is talking about what Chicagoans call the machine. It's the system that ran politics in the city for decades. And if you want to learn about the machine, you take an elevator to the third floor of City Hall. And you find the office of Ed Burke. He's arguably Chicago's most powerful city council member, or alderman. Hello. How are you? (laughs) Just a few years ago, Ed Burke became the longest-serving alderman in Chicago history. He's been in office for 45 years. We're interviewing Burke in a conference room lined with portraits of aldermen, mostly white, that go all the way back to the mid-19th century. 
Alderman Burke carries himself with the confidence of a man in charge. There's a deliberate formality to his manner and his impeccably tailored pinstripe suit. Ed Burke has been described as one of the last of the old-school Chicago machine politicians. So describe the machine for people who are outside of Chicago and and don't really understand what that means. It really was a creature of uh, Anton Cermak, who was the mayor of Chicago in 1931. He built a political structure that was based on patronage in every precinct, in every ward and township in Chicago and Cook County, there was a representative of the Democratic Party who would go door to door and to do whatever is necessary to encourage those voters to be loyal to the leadership of the Democratic Party. And that's the way Chicago politics worked in those days. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it, by the way. With the, with the patronage system. Exactly. Patronage, favors, gifts. The Democratic machine ran on precinct captains giving out jobs, making sure that Junior got out on bail if he got arrested, turkeys at Thanksgiving. Those perks benefited lots of people in the city, but they also cemented the Democratic Party's grip on Chicago politics. In the mid-1950s, the machine was inherited and streamlined by the most powerful mayor in Chicago history. Richard J. Daley was elected mayor of Chicago six times, serving over 20 years. And we're hoping to provide employment and jobs for the men and women that live in our city. We must have slum clearance. While we are clearing the slums, we must prevent the spread of blight into the other neighborhoods. We respect the constitutional rights and the human rights of everyone, but no one will take the law in their own hand or be law and order in Chicago as long as I'm mayor. Mayor Daley was nicknamed Boss, and with him at the helm, the machine became one of the most well-organized vote-producing entities in America, controlling three million people in the second biggest city. But the machine worked in a racially segregated city, and that affected who got what. Ray Hanania was a Chicago City Hall reporter in the 70s and 80s. Maybe other people don't understand this, but in Chicago, everything is defined by race and ethnicity. Your Polish neighborhood, your Jewish neighborhood, there was a black neighborhood. You didn't mix. By 1970, over half a million African Americans left the South and came to Chicago looking for work, racial equality, and places to live, sometimes in neighborhoods that were traditionally white. I'm Arab. I lived in a Jewish neighborhood on the southeast side next to Pill Hill. It was all white. There were no blacks there. One black family moved in in 1968 on our block, and literally within six months, that entire neighborhood converted from all white to 90% African American. It was white flight, and it terrified the Daily Machine, which needed that white voting bloc to maintain power. So there was a real incentive for keeping whites in the city by keeping the neighborhoods segregated. The machine, under Richard J. Daley, built a highway straight through the south side, separating black neighborhoods from the white neighborhood where the mayor grew up. When black schools became overcrowded, the machine created separate classrooms and trailers for black students rather than sending them to nearby half-empty white schools. The machine built public housing developments, mostly in black communities. 
And under the machine's watch, unemployment rates in white neighborhoods were in the single digits. But in black neighborhoods, it was typically above 20 percent. Everywhere I went was black folks. And you didn't leave the South Side very often, maybe occasionally to go downtown to go see the movies. But the South Side was sort of an enclave. It was a series of territories for black people was the way I remembered it. Laura Washington is a journalist who grew up on the South Side of Chicago. One of the reasons I went into journalism was I always felt that there was something wrong with that, that there were two cities and the South Side was very different from the North Side and from the West Side. There was no reason for that except that the folks on the South Side were black. Being aware of that from such a young age... How did that awareness make you feel? It made me feel angry, and it made me feel shut out of opportunities. But despite the differences in how white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods were treated, the majority of black people voted for Daley. And there were African Americans, including Harold Washington, who held positions within the Daley machine, and they were rewarded for their loyalty. But in the late 60s, there were some significant moments that eroded that support. In 1966, Martin Luther King led demonstrations against housing segregation in Chicago, meeting opposition from Mayor Daley. He comes up for only one purpose, and that is to create trouble in our city and every city in which he's visited. King was met by violent resistance in white neighborhoods. Don't let the niggers put you around every day! During a march in the white neighborhood of Marquette Park, an angry mob threw bricks, bottles, and rocks at the marchers. King was struck in the head. I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. Following King's assassination in 1968, Daly took a hard-line law-and-order approach against rioting. To shoot to kill any arsonist, to shoot to maim or cripple anyone looting. In Chicago today, two Black Panthers were killed. In 1969, Black Panthers Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were killed by the police in a raid. One of the dead was Fred Hampton, 22-year-old. Many in the black community called it an assassination. Panther Bobby Rush charges it was the raiding party, not the Panthers, who did the shooting. But despite these flare-ups, the status quo remained intact into the 70s. But then... The machine was blindsided. This is NBC Nightly News, Monday, December 20th. Good evening. Mayor Richard J. Daley of Chicago died this afternoon of a heart attack, age 74. His death was a surprise. His health had been good lately. He had been to see his doctor for a routine visit. Confusion reigned. Alderman Ed Burke. Keep in mind there were many, many uh, citizens who had known no other mayor than Richard J. Daley. He was elected in 1955 and succumbed in 1976, suddenly, without any preparation for a successor. Coming up on Making Obama, the movement that inspired Obama to come to Chicago. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It was a wonderful way to learn about, I think, a lot of the dynamics that were taking place all across the country with respect to race, with respect to power, uh, but also 
you know, how do you build coalitions across races, across you know, classes that uh, were lasting. By the mid-80s, African Americans made up around 40 percent of Chicago's population. That made them a powerful voting bloc. After Daley's death, African Americans helped elect Jane Byrne. She ran for mayor as an anti-machine reformer. I think it's time to get this city moving again. I think it's time to get Chicago working again for you. Vote for Jane Byrne in the Democratic primary. But after Byrne was in office, she appeared to align herself with the machine and made decisions that alienated black voters. After that, activists convinced Harold Washington to make a run for mayor of Chicago. So in the 1983 mayoral Democratic primary, you had Harold Washington, the incumbent Jane Byrne, and another candidate with a very familiar name. I have decided to be a candidate for mayor of Chicago. Richard M. Daley, son of the former mayor and machine boss, Richard J. Daley. On this day, especially, I think of my father. He was never satisfied with the progress the city had made. Many Chicagoans still revered the first mayor, Daley, as a man who kept the city working. There are no good qualities of past mayors to be had. None, none, none. Washington, on the other hand, spoke very differently about Daley. I did not mourn at the bar of the late mayor. I regret anyone dying. I have no regrets about him leaving. He was a racist from the core, head to toe and hip to hip. There's no danger of doubt about it. And Harold had this to say about the candidacy of Daley the Younger. I give no who's honest to a racist, nor do I appreciate or respect his son. If his name were anything other than Daley, his campaign would be a joke. And he runs on the legacy of his name. Everything I've ever got in the world, I worked for it. Nobody gave me anything. Journalist Laura Washington would later become Harold's press secretary. One of the reasons I was so excited about his candidacy is because of the inequities that I grew up with. And he campaigned on addressing those inequities and fixing those inequities. And although I may sound abrasive, I have no malice toward anybody. I have a job to do. I've got places to go and things to do. And I approach this job just like any masterful surgeon when you have to cut out a cancer. I cut it out with no emotion. Get it out. And he talked constantly about the two Chicago's and about inequity and about fairness and how he was going to bring fairness to the city. And he meant it. I believed that he was going to do it. I can't believe there is no redemption. But that redemption is not going to come out in hatred. It's going to come out in positive attitude toward our fellow man. I've enjoyed this campaign. I suppose you can see that. Harold Washington regularly said that politics ain't beanbag, but he loved playing the game of politics, and he was a master wordsmith. City Hall reporter Ray Hanania. He knew how to give us headlines. He knew how to give us good quotes. He was very eloquent. To bring sanity or start bringing sanity in the city by skewing racism. And it contradicted the stereotype that African Americans were not as educated. Here's a guy that was very eloquent, very smart, and he was funny. He had great lines. Well, I hope he impales himself on his own petard. He deserves it. Washington ran roughshod over Byrne and Daly during debates. His media appearances were masterful. But Harold had more than charisma. His ground game was pretty good, too. I already said to Harold, if you ever run for mayor, I will come from wherever I'm at to make sure you win. 
Much later, Al Kendall would work for Obama as a field operator. But in 1983, Kendall's job was to help deliver the black vote to Harold Washington. Landlords from all over the city would meet with us, and they would give us the keys to their apartment buildings so we can go in and organize block by block. We had created that kind of fever. In a move that seemed to come straight out of the machine playbook, the Washington team made some friends in the letter carriers union to help distribute their campaign literature. Well, we had all the black letter carriers that took the mail and delivered them for us. Free. Now, we never talked about it. (laughs) Was that legal? No, it wasn't. But, you know, this is now 30 years later. Mm -hmm. They they can't convict Harold. So for people listening who would say, well, you know, how do you justify breaking election laws to get Harold Washington in office. Well, what was clear was the machine, or then the Democratic Party, broke the laws in order to be able to keep us enslaved. They were already using this system for themselves. They never figured that we would be smart enough to do it for ourselves. Harold Washington's blood our blood. We don't have to apologize for that. He is the father of our fathers and sons of our sons. And we Harold's campaign developed a passionate following in Chicago's black neighborhoods. We want Washington! We want Washington! He just had a magic to it. And throngs of people would come out. Judson Minor and Marilyn Katz were early white progressive supporters of Harold's campaign. Not only African Americans, but white folks began to come out and support him. It's funny, I mean, those badges, the Harold Washington badges, the blue and white, became a sign of such great pride, of such great identification, that very much like Barack, it spoke volumes about who you were, what your aspirations were, and what people thought was possible. It was overwhelming. You had just a sea of people with those little blue buttons. And I came home and said to my wife, it's hard to believe this guy can actually win this election, but you got to come with me to the South Side one of these days, because it is breathtaking. On the night of the 1983 primary, Harold Washington's friend and legal advisor, Judson Minor, was recruited to work at some polling places on the west side. As we got toward the end of the day, I said, you guys do me a favor, we've been candid with each other here. How's this going to turn out? And in each of the precincts, they were forced to admit that Washington was going to do much better than people thought. They thought he might even get 50, 60 percent of the vote. And he, in each of the precincts, was well over 90 percent, whether it was 95 percent, who just Washington, 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 burn, Washington, Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the next mayor of the city of Chicago. It appears that I have been nominated the Democratic by the Democratic voters. Normally, when the Democratic mayoral candidate wins the primary in the city of Chicago, that candidate is pretty much the de facto mayor. But this was not a normal campaign because Harold Washington was black. Epton for mayor before it's too late. Bernie Epton's campaign slogan was Before It's Too Late, which was a racial charged reminder to white people, Bernie Epton is white, and now you got one last chance. This is it. Do your people, is race a factor in this campaign? 
Well, if we want to keep our neighborhoods up to par, I think it is. I discriminate. What can I say? I do. Why does 95% of the blacks vote for Washington? They, they, they are more racist than we are. Come on, let's knock it off. Why don't they call us spade a spade? Republican Bernie Epton talked a lot about Washington's past failure to file his income tax returns. Washington did get a misdemeanor charge on his record, but Epton regularly called him a convicted felon. I just don't feel like a man like that should uh, rule our city. Epton for mayor before it's too late. Keep the city wide! Keep the city wide! Pro-Epton t-shirts and bumper stickers proclaimed, vote white, vote right. Hate literature against Washington was decorated with watermelons and chicken bones and said things like, quote, you will be robbed or killed. White women will be raped. With a black police chief, there will be absolute chaos in the city. And the most infamous moment in the campaign occurred outside St. Pascal's Church. The incident occurred in a predominantly white neighborhood on Chicago's northwest side. At a planned campaign stop, Harold was met by an angry mob. Washington then had second thoughts about staying. On the side of a Catholic church, someone had spray-painted the words, Die, nigger, die. In Harold's campaign in the last weekend in April for the general, we were going to lose. Marilyn Katz led the media team for the Washington campaign. And we were down, not, not a huge amount, but we looked like we were going to lose. There are moments in our country's history of which all Americans are thoroughly and profoundly ashamed. One of those moments may be happening now, here in Chicago. That Sunday... We ran two commercials that were very controversial. They only played one night on all four stations. Here in Chicago, we know what makes America strong. The ads held up a mirror to the racism of the general election campaign, and they challenged white voters with a simple message. Essentially, think of what you're doing before you vote. On April 12th, we'll do more than elect a new mayor. We'll send a message to the entire nation. Chicago can express the highest ideals of America because we're going to vote with our hearts, not with our fears. And we won by the skin of our teeth. The city of Chicago. And that I will faithfully discharge the duties Harold of Washington was elected mayor of Chicago with just 15% of the white vote and 51% of the vote citywide. Congratulations, Mayor. Journalist Laura Washington. African Americans couldn't believe that this had happened, that we had elected an African-American mayor in a city that had been perceived as racist for so long. I think people felt like Harold Washington came 20 years before they ever expected, much in the way that people didn't expect Barack Obama to be the first black president. Hello, Chicago! I think people were really excited that same way about Harold Washington. Do you really want Harold? Yeah. You really got him! <laughs> what was the reaction you, when he won? Terrified. Well, what Jubilation. I remember coming... Those, now, those are two very different words, yeah, terrified, terrified and jubilation. And jubilation. Huh. I remember coming to the office the, the following morning, jubilant, still a journalist, but thrilled. And I walked into my office building, and there was a white elevator operator who I said hello to every day I came to work. And he was looking pretty glum, and I heard him say something to the effect that, I'm moving out of the city, I'm gone. And there was a lot of gloom and doom I felt among white boys. Not just gloom and doom, but fear. While Chicago was reeling from the result of the election, Barack Obama was in New York, and the national headlines about Harold Washington caught his attention. So I was keeping my eye on it, and in fact, I wrote 
to you know, Harold Washington's office, uh, postmarked uh, whatever, and uh, understandably didn't get a response because I didn't really know who to write to, mm-hmm. uh, thinking that uh, it'd be fun to work for him. When I started looking for jobs in community organizing, uh, one of the things that appealed to me about uh, the offer I got from Developing Communities Project, the group that was on the south side that I ultimately worked for, was the fact that it was in Chicago. I thought it was a city that was grappling with a lot of urban issues that I was interested in. Uh, You had a mayor who was trying to do some interesting things. So when I arrived in 1985, uh, in that summer, Harold was dominating the political scene. Uh, Council Wars was in full fury. The Council Wars was the name given to the legendary battle between Harold Washington and the majority of the Chicago City Council, led by the powerful alderman Ed Verdoliak. Harold Washington declared war on the Democratic Party machine from day one. He said there's no longer going to be business as usual. You're no longer going to keep all the goodies for your constituents. And I called out patronage, patronage, are you lying? And patronage didn't answer. It is dead, dead, dead. And if you see Mr. Vidoliak, tell him it's dead. But the old machine aldermen weren't going to give in so easily. And they felt like they were going to make sure that they fought him tooth and nail on everything he wanted to do in his agenda to make sure he didn't succeed. In the council wars, you had 29 white aldermen led by Ed Verdoliak versus 21 more diverse aldermen aligned with Harold Washington. The so-called Verdoliak 29 had enough votes to override the mayor's veto, resulting in gridlock. They passed budgets, but voted down all of Harold's proposals and appointments. It all got pretty nasty. As to when something is dilatory. Sir, I suggest to you, I suggest to you, sir. I suggest to you, sir. I suggest when the white alderman would stand up in the city council and yell and be defiant, uh, and the mayor couldn't even keep order sometimes, that spoke to some white voters who felt they were losing their grasp in the city, who were afraid of losing their grasp in the city. Mr. Vidoyak, I've never run from anybody, including you, in my life. You and Ed Verdoliak uh, during the mid-80s were famously called the the two Eddies during the council wars. From your perspective, why was there such a divide in the council? Well, it was only because we had no choice. Alderman Ed Burke. If Harold would have cooperated with the majority in the city council and shared the power and prerogatives that had existed in Chicago politics for time immemorial, we could have uh, worked out an accommodation, but he chose not to. So we had a choice either to surrender or fight for the political gains that we had achieved. So for you, race was not part of the equation? It was never a a part of the equation. Uh, It was a matter of practical uh, Chicago politics. I think that... uh there was a profound racism that drove them. Judson Minor, who would later hire Obama to work at his firm, was then an attorney for Mayor Washington. It was tragic. It wasn't a policy fight or anything. This was all about race and power. And they were going to make sure that he was a one-term mayor. I, you know, I kind of look at the Congress under Barack Obama and 
compare it to what we went through in the 29-21. Jackie Grimshaw was the director of Mayor Washington's Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. So unlike what the Congress did to Barack, we were able to work with these 29 people to pass legislation. Every once in a while, they want to flex their muscles. But for Jackie, that muscle flexing wasn't necessarily rooted in racism. Externally, yeah. Their constituents, yeah. But in dealing with them, no. Uh uh-uh. uh. Because I, Harold was black, because I was black, you know, the, the issue was always green. It really wasn't about race. Race was an instrument of politics. City Hall reporter Ray Hanania. They used race when Bernie Upton was running to incite fear to keep people from voting for Washington. But it wasn't racism like, oh, I hate him because he's black. But it's interesting because I've heard this argument and it's it's a little tricky to wrap my brain around because it's not racism, but we're using racism to to make a political argument. They would would use everything. I guess what I'm saying is they weren't driven by hate, but they didn't hesitate to use racist fear to get what they wanted. Regardless of the Verdoli Act 29's motivations, Chicago in the mid-80s was steeped in racial tension, and it was all happening during Obama's first year in the city. And in those early years of the Washington administration, actual change seemed impossible thanks to those 29 aldermen. My job was to figure out how do we sort of navigate around them? What what can we do notwithstanding their opposition? Judson Minor and other Washington allies decided to sue the city, alleging that ward borders had been unfairly drawn to minimize minority voting power. And the court found in their favor. He won big and part of the relief we got were special elections, and we won all the wards so that now it was no longer 29-21, but 25-25, and the mayor could break the tie. As it became apparent we were getting our agenda through, some of the white aldermen opted to be supportive. The council wars were over. And in 1987, Mayor Washington was re-elected for a second term. And ushers in a new era of government in Chicago. Jesus Chewy Garcia was then one of the newly elected aldermen from a Latino ward. And after his re-election, where he's only had the opportunity to govern under normal circumstances for one year, the city, I think, is a different place. I think other political leaders who may have been his staunch opponent recognize that he's going to be mayor for a long, long time and that business as usual will not take place any longer in the city. So this commitment toward racial progress continues to be a living tribute to what Harold Washington brought to Chicago politics. I know a lot of this might sound like it happened a long time ago, but really, it's only been about 30 years. The turmoil and change in 1980s Chicago did transform the city's politics, and Obama was witness to a lot of it. But coming up, a movement loses its leader. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. No one, but no one in this city, no matter where they live or how they live, is free from the fairness of our administration. We'll find you and be fair to you wherever you are. Don't worry about a thing. But I need your help. I need your help. Some of the work that Harold did was inspiring and I think ended up having an influence on me once I went into politics. Uh, In some cases, there were object lessons as well uh, that I learned uh, from his administration because after he tragically passed away, that energy dissipated. At approximately 11 a.m. Wednesday morning, shortly following a press conference, Chicago Mayor Harold Washington suffered a fatal heart attack at his desk in City Hall. Harold Washington died of a heart attack the day before Thanksgiving, 1987, just seven months into his second term. Even now, 30 years later, when you talk to people who were close to him, Harold's death is still raw. I mean, even now, if I talk about it too much, it'll kind of bring me to tears. He was quite a guy. Well, I had been with him that morning. I was with Harold that morning. And when I saw Harold, his eyes were glassy and his hands was big as a baseball mitt. There were so many other things that uh, came first, but his health, that was a low priority. It was uh, probably, well, it was the worst thing <laughs> that ever happened to me. It really, it really was. Harold's chief of staff, Ernest Bearfield, announced the funeral. Funeral services will be held Monday, November 30th at Christ Universal Church at 10 a.m. The city was in total mourning, or at least most of the city was in total mourning. Daily Plaza, where hundreds of people are gathered in the rain, people from every part of the My city. My most dominant thought was anger at him for leaving us so soon. I remember uh, being very, very sad. I had uh, stayed up the night before trying to put my remarks uh, together. Today, in 87, we know that you're in heaven. Adios, amigo. Adios. You know, I grew up with this guy whose first name was Mayor and last name was Daly. And all of that that meant, and Harold putting an end to that. Now, Mayor was a title. It was not a first name. And the first name was Harold, and everybody knew it. And had he lived, Harold would have ran for president as opposed to Barack. Do you have what-if moments when you think about him? Oh, all the time. All the time. And you got a sense that Part of what you had to do was to build organizations that could outlast any single individual. And I don't think he had time to do that during the time that he was in office. Who was the next follow-up to punctuate the Harold Washington movement? Al Kendall worked on campaigns for both Harold Washington and Barack Obama. Many of the people who supported Barack in the early years, we were highly interested in where next we were going. So you had a movement that was looking for somebody, and you had somebody who was looking to be part of a movement and to get something done. So indeed, it was a marriage. The Harold Washington race, I think, in many ways, was a foundation on which the Barack Obama career and certainly his ascendancy was built. If Harold hadn't broken down those barriers, 
1983. I'm not sure that Obama would have been in a position to get elected senator in 2004. For Obama's run for the U.S. Senate in 2004, David Axelrod worked as the chief media strategist. On the night of the Democratic Senate primary, Axelrod closely tracked the election returns. And I remember looking up one particular precinct on the northwest side of Chicago that was the home to St. Pascal's Catholic Church. Harold Washington had campaigned there in 1983, and he went to this church, and he was greeted with crowds that were reminiscent of the Deep South in the Civil Rights days. The incident occurred in a predominantly white neighborhood on Chicago's northwest side. It was so acrimonious and so ugly that it it made the cover of national news magazines. Washington then had second thoughts about staying. And I looked up the precinct in which St. Pascal's Church sat the night of Obama's primary for the Senate, and uh, he had carried it. In fact, he had carried almost the entire northwest side where Harold Washington got like 2% of the vote. I think it's fair to say that the conventional wisdom was we could not win. There was no way that a skinny guy from the south side with a funny name like Barack Obama could ever win a statewide race. I said to him, Harold's smiling down on us tonight. And Democrats from all across Illinois, suburb, city, downstate, upstate, black, white, Hispanic, Asian have declared, yes, we can. Yes, we can. That was the sound of a polished politician. Barack Obama on the night of his first statewide victory in 2004. But before then, he had a lot to figure out. So we still got a ways to go. Next time on Making Obama. He said to me, I'm sorry I can't take the job. I love you guys, but I'm going to go into politics. Obama secures his most important ally. Both of us were standing up, and he said, I'd prefer it if we both sit down. I thought, what the hell is this? And he said, uh, I want you to know I'm taking Michelle with me. He publishes the story of his life so far. He called me and he said, how do you think Michelle will react if I just go away for a while and work on my book? And I said, you just got married. That's not a great idea. You're writing your autobiography at the age of 32 or 33 or whatever. And he gets his first taste of political hardball. Toronto had a hard time sleeping. He was concerned about Alice, but he didn't want to get punked. Making Obama is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, with editing help from Kevin Dawson of Whistledown Productions. Really special thanks to James Edwards, Joe Dassault, Candice Mattel-Khan, Justin Bull, Steve Edwards, and our intern, B. Aldridge. Our digital editor is Trisha Bobita. And if you want even more Making Obama, go to wbez.org slash Obama. Well, you were on our station. I was. More than a few times. I was on there frequently, so I figured, I hear you're you're from Detroit. I am. So you just got to Chicago how long ago? About two years ago. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome. Well, thank you. Yeah, I thank hope everybody's you. treating you well. There. Chicago has been very good to me so yeah, far. Absolutely. Chicago's a gorgeous place. It is. It's it a is. wonderful place. It gets cold. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.